After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that was Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Thanks, sir. You all can go ahead and have a seat. As we get started, I want to um, give a warning, if I can say that. Um, pastors don't usually give warnings at the beginning of a sermon, um, but there's a temptation that we face when we come to something like Good Friday and it's somber and feels mellow. Uh, the temptation is to try to get ourselves uh, to think that Jesus is dying today uh, and to mourn as though that's happening. Uh, we know that that's not the case. So um, I just want to, uh, I guess, say uh, the time is for reflection it's for uh, thinking about what Jesus has done for us, um, but there's no need to manufacture sorrow. Um, I don't know if you feel that temptation. I have felt that temptation before, so just wanted to start with that. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are here to remember the passion of our Lord Jesus, and we pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts as we think on it. And pray that you would show us more of all that you've given us in him. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this past Sunday was Palm Sunday. It was the day that we remember the king of the world making his public debut. He was not a king who arrived in vestments of gold with an entourage of chariots. He arrived in his city on a small donkey. A few weeks ago, I was driving down I-30, and I hit standstill traffic. And assuming there was an accident, I got off the highway, thinking I would take some back roads. And I worked my way around and ended up over by Ridgemar Mall. And I was stopped there also. The traffic was stopped from I-30 all the way over near Lockheed, and I soon found out why. As I sat in my car, I began to see police cars flying by, and then armored vehicles, and ambulances, and motorcycles, and countless black suburbans. The President of the United States was in Fort Worth, and his entourage was vast. I eventually quit trying to count the cars. But our Lord came into his royal city on the back of a dumb animal. How far the kings of the earth have fallen. 
Adam was created to walk in fellowship with God because that is a role of a king. But rather than stare in awe at that and lay down our coats for a donkey to walk over, we prefer the sight of the entourage. We don't want to see the king walking in humility. We prefer the entourage. The faithful lay their coats and palm branches out to welcome the Savior. And but for God's grace, we would have all preferred the entourage of the wicked. We want the king that arrives in splendid array, and yet they call out, Hosanna, Hosanna, as the man in simple clothing saunters down the street on the back of an ass. This has nothing to do with American politics. This has everything to do with the heart of man. Because this was true of the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans as well. Jesus arrived in the city as a king. He's a humble king. He arrived in the city and he made his way to the temple as a king should do. The first act of the new king was to go to the temple to worship the God who made him king. But when he drew near, he wept over the city as he looked out and saw what it had become. He made his way to the temple, and also as the king should do, he dismissed those who had turned the place of worship into the place of idolatry. We expect rulers in times of transition to clean house. And that's what our king did. Robbery had become preferred to worship. And so the king dismissed them. The king had come to receive a kingdom. And he had come to put that kingdom to rights. A new kind of kingdom had arrived. A true kingdom And it immediately clashed with the cancer that had grown and consumed the nation. The king taught and modeled what the kingdom was to be like. He taught in the temple. He sat and feasted and taught his his council, his disciples. And on that night, they refused to serve one another. They hadn't gotten the message yet. They didn't understand how the kingdom was supposed to work. And so the king who rides donkeys rose from the table and put on the garments of a slave. And he took a bowl and filled it with water and then went to each of his cabinet members, generals, and he washed their feet. What kind of king washes the feet of his generals? A true king. And yet one of those generals who lusted after the entourage, he went out to conspire against the king. Many kings in history have been stabbed in the back by their confidants. And our king was no different. Judas, the minister of finance, he betrayed the king for a small sum, enough to buy a piece of property. And this traitor, in the middle of the night, led a group of politicians and thugs who masqueraded as holy men to the place where the king was praying. 
the king who rides donkeys, who insists on pure worship, who washes feet, who prays. This is the king they were so afraid of. They did not want the people to become like him. They were so terrified of the goodness of the king that they had to stamp it out at all costs. We look at this and we think, that's crazy. They're being a bit unreasonable. Can't we live and let live? But they actually understood something that I think we miss all the time. They understood that there are no neutral forces or powers in the world. Light and darkness do not mix. They do not play together. There are no neutral forces. The one must consume the other. The Bible calls the the forces which shape our lives leaven. Um, leaven, if you're not familiar, um, you, you put leaven in dough, if you're making bread, to make it rise. If you bake bread and you don't put the leaven in, you pull it out of the oven, it will still be flat. So the leaven is the potent agent that's invisible when you put it in. You can't see it in the dough. But when you turn the heat on, suddenly it becomes very visible. You know the lump has been leavened. Sin is a type of leaven in the Bible. And so is righteousness. Either will fill one's life, and when the heat is on, the leavening agent within you will be revealed. What potent force fills you? There is no neutral leaven. No person or family, business, school, church, or government can remain neutral. We see this today. Businesses and organizations that are trying to play nice and stay neutral, they haven't been able to. They've been forced to take a side. Our king came to destroy the leaven of sin and to remake the loaf unleavened so that he could re-leaven it with the leaven of righteousness. That means that those who have been leavened by sin must kick against the leaven of righteousness. They hate it. It is a threat to their power. And so Jerusalem, the holy city, and her leaders had been captured by the leaven of sin. And for that reason, they sought to destroy the king of righteousness. They demonstrated this when they came to capture him in secret. They came by night. And when they asked which one was Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he. And his word threw them off their feet. His very word caused them to fall before him, and yet still they preferred him dead. One of the king's generals drew his sword and struck one of the men who had come out against him. The king said, put that away. The king was going to fight this battle differently. And instead, he bent down to heal the person who had just been struck. He performs a miracle. And still, they put him in chains, carry him off. In the night, the king was lied about, struck, spit on. 
The high priest, who was supposed to be the priest of the Most High God, proved himself to be a priest of Baal. He considered it better for the sinless one to die than to risk the kingdom on righteousness. So they accused the king of speaking blasphemy and breaking his own law. And then they went further, and they added to their treachery. They took the king and carried him off to a pagan court and asked the court to execute him. But they, as holy men, they would not go into the court, lest they be defiled. We'll let the pagans do our dirty work for us, but we will be nothing like them. How wicked and deceitful is the heart of man. They didn't want to be unclean because it was the time of the Passover. The Passover, which marked Israel's deliverance from the wrath of God by the blood of a spotless lamb. And they could not recognize that they had become worse than the Egyptians who warranted God's wrath. I want to walk you through the language, the king language that we got in the chapter that's been read so far. And I'm actually going to start a little bit... uh, farther back. I'm going to start in John 18, and uh, I'm going to jump around, so don't feel the need to uh, follow along. Just listen. Pilate said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Pilate went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. They chose a robber over the king. Once again, they prefer evil to righteousness. Barabbas His name means son of a man. He's essentially a nameless guy. He's the son of some guy. And so they basically were saying, give us any man but not the king. This was Israel's clear rejection of her God. And then in chapter 19, again, notice notice the imagery. The soldiers twist together a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe, a royal color. They came up to him, bowing down, Hail, King of the Jews! Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate's men put kingly attire on him, a crown and a robe, and rather than giving him a rod by which to rule, they struck him with a rod upon his back. The Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate brought Jesus out, and it says he sat down on the judgment seat But the Greek there is ambiguous. Uh, Either Pilate sat down or Pilate sat Jesus down. 
Not quite sure, but it doesn't matter. Either way, this is adding to this mock coronation that Jesus was receiving. This was indeed a coronation. If you remember, the king comes in. He arrives as a king. He's praised as a king. He goes to the temple as a king. He feasts with his generals as a king. He has been crowned and robed. He has received a rod to his back. And so he's either sitting on the judgment seat being made fun of or someone is sitting over him on the judgment seat. And Pilate says, behold your king. And his people cry out, away with him. Away with him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. This was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. Israel had finished her apostasy. They had condemned their king and bowed down to a foreign one. And so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And they stripped him and took his things and nailed him to a cross. Nails hammered through his hands and feet so that he would be lifted up for everyone to behold. And there was an inscription above his head. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The cross marked the cruel coronation of the King of the earth. The enemies of God mocked and derided him. Though he came in on a donkey in faithfulness to God, though he took the form of a slave, they were the ones to crown him to put a robe on him, to bow to him. They were the ones who hailed him as a king, and they were the ones who lifted him up for the world to see. They had no idea what they were doing. And their mockery only made the people more indignant. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And after being lifted up, the king said, I thirst. And wine was given to him. It was a king's drink. He had been placed on high and given wine to drink, but it was wine mixed with gall to make it bitter, just as his coronation was bitter. And when the king had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The king who serves the king with no entourage, the king who prays, the king who is betrayed, the king who dies. Is this your king? The king had been lifted up and now he hung dead. It was a violation of the king's law. Yes, the king they had just murdered. It was a violation of his law to leave bodies hanging on a holy day. It was a defilement of the land, never mind the defilement that was the crucifixion of the Son of God. But nonetheless, to keep the law, the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of those crucified so that they would suffocate quicker. That's how crucifixion works. In that position, you begin to suffocate. And you're in agony because of the nails. 
And all one can do in that position is use the muscles in their arms to pull against the nails to try to raise themselves up a little bit and use the muscles in their legs to push against the nail going through their feet to rise just enough to take a breath. And then in the anguish and exhaustion, they would slump back down only to have to repeat the process until they couldn't anymore. Breaking the legs meant they couldn't rise for air, and so they would die quicker. But when they came to the king, they noticed he was already dead. And so they did not break him. When God gave the law of the Passover, the blood of the lamb was to be spilt, but its bones were not to be broken. The Passover lamb had been slain, and instead of breaking his bones... His blood was spilled. They pierced his side with a spear and outflowed blood and water. And this brings a flood of images with it. Blood ran from the king's side onto the ground. When righteous Abel was murdered by his kinsman, his brother, His blood was poured out on the ground, and the ground screamed out in judgment against him. And when the blood of Jesus fell to the ground, the earth began to quake. This was the Passover, remember, which is actually today as well. And a lamb had been killed, and blood had been spilled. But what was the blood for? It was to cover the houses of Israel to save them from the death of the firstborn. Here, on the cross, the firstborn son was slain. But he was also the lamb. And his blood pours out onto the earth to cover it, to save it. In Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, and the Father endured the plague of death. When men lost children in those days, they would tear their garments to express the depth of their anguish and their grief. And when the king died, there was a tearing in the father's house. The curtain of the temple was ripped down the middle as the father watched his beloved son die. But notice from where our Savior bled. His side was pierced. This was not the first time that it happened. Adam experienced something very much like this. Adam experienced something like a death, a deep sleep, and his side was torn open, and from the tearing of his flesh, his bride was created. More than that, What did Adam call her in Genesis? It says, he called her bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That became a way of expressing unity between people. Many times in the Bible, uh, people are called bone and flesh. It's not just married couples. In in 2 Samuel 5, when uh, David is anointed king, the tribes of Israel come to him and they say, behold, we are your bone and flesh. And on the cross, the greater David hung. 
He was also the new Adam. But what is an Adam without an Eve? And what is a David without an Israel? If you follow Jesus, if the humble donkey riding servant who dies, if he is your king, you have become his bone and flesh. And not one of his bones was broken or shall be. His body is forever whole. The church shall never be broken. Broken bones, crushed bones, or rotten bones are all images in the Bible, and they are a picture of judgment. Whole bones meant things may not be over. If you consider the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, all that was required was for the Spirit to come on them, and they lived. Now, along with the blood, water came pouring out. It's an interesting thing. And I want you to picture it. You don't have to get a, necessarily a picture of Jesus in your mind, but just what's happening there at the cross. The side is pierced and water comes gushing out from a man who's been lifted up. And it flows down onto the ground. This is a flood image. When the waters of heaven and the fountains of the deep burst open, Right after the murder of Abel, Genesis takes us directly to Noah by a genealogy. Takes us right to Noah in the flood. And there the waters of heaven burst forth to judge the world, but also to cleanse it and to recreate it. When the flood ended, a new world began. Jesus Christ died and the blood and water testified against the guilty and simultaneously set the stage for something new. Zechariah prophesied that when God brought salvation, it would look like mourning. It would look like mourning for someone whom they had killed. It says they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him. And on that day, Zechariah writes, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It will continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name, one. The fountain has been opened. Jeremiah describes the king's throne by saying, A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. The cross was a cruel throne, but it is a place of sanctuary, of safety. There has the king been lifted up, and there we can go to find the fountain of living water to cleanse and satisfy our souls. The passion of our Lord was also his cruel coronation. 
And though the enemies of God sought to mock and blaspheme the Son of God, they were actually the ones to lift him up and secure his seat on the eternal throne wherein we have a sanctuary forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we need the sanctuary of the cross to know that our treachery has been dealt with. We can be cleansed only there by the fount of living water. By your grace, we bow down before Jesus our Lord, and though he was crowned with thorns, and though he was enthroned on a cross, it is nonetheless our privilege and our joy to follow him. He is the king who has brought us to you, and we are your servants, just as our king has taught us. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his passion. Thank you for your love, for the compassion that you've poured out on us, we who were your enemies. We remember the injustice that was carried out against our Lord on this day, and we lament our sin, but we rejoice. We rejoice in the, the hope that despite his affliction, not a single bone of his was broken. And if we are built on him, then neither shall we be. Please bless us as we continue to consider these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.